Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi. I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and, in fact, what is going right with the American news media. And hello, and I'm sorry that I am a sick, I was a sick, flaky, I was, my brain melted inside my head. And I apologize to you and our listeners for my absence, but I'm very glad to be back. Don't worry about me. It's the listeners who have been asking I, after you. I heard, I heard from them. I was in Chicago on Monday talking to the National Beer Wholesalers Association. Shout out to the beer distributors. And people, I had a couple of people come up to me when I was doing the meet and greet afterwards, and they're like, no wretches last week? No wretches? And I'm like, wow, okay. Like, I'm impressed, but also, do I need a restraining order? Like, hello. Okay, we got to make up for lost time All here. Right. Let's get, let's, let's turn get and burn. Let's okay. turn and burn. Yeah. We got the Tapper Biden interview. Okay. You know, I'm a glass half empty kind of person. <laughs> and so I wanted to play the clip. I think Tapper was, he's an aggressive guy, but he was like pretty gentle on old Joe. In particular, there were, there were three moments that really jumped out to me. The first was about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Mm. So let's play that clip. Let's turn to Saudi Arabia. Um, some of your Democratic allies on Capitol Hill are afraid that the U.S. got played when you went to Saudi Arabia and fist-bumped with the crown prince because now, obviously, a few months later, Saudi-backed OPEC is slashing oil production in partnership with Russia. The chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Menendez, just called for a freeze on cooperation with Saudi Arabia, including most arms sales. Senator Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, says the Saudis sided with Russia against the United States. Do you think it's time for the U.S. to rethink its relationship with Saudi Arabia? Yes. And by the way, let's get straight why I went. I didn't go to one about oil. I went about making sure that we made sure that we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East and what was going on. And by the way, today I just got off the telephone with the president of, of uh, uh, I, I, I got off the phone with the prime minister of Israel and the president of Lebanon. They've worked out a deal. They've been at war, declared war with one another for a long time. They've worked out a boundary relationship along the, in the, uh, in, in the Eastern Mediterranean for oil. I, and they're going to make an agreement that is historic. Well, uh, I mean, what on earth was that? And the question that <laughs> I really wanted Tapper to ask was, Listen, you campaigned saying that you were going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. You came into office and you pivoted and you went and you fist bumped the crown prince. And now you're sitting here telling me that once again, you're going to change the relationship and make them a pariah. So where is the strategy here? Well, it's like explain it, explain it to the like casual observer. Well, th this is like they're trying to do like a mini Abraham Accord two step where it's like, oh, it wasn't about the oil. It was about helping the Jews. It was about solving. It was about Middle East peace, and the 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 end of the Israel Lebanon conflict. I guess is something, but I don't think that was the I don't think that was the hottest ticket. I listened to uh, Karine Jean Pierre 
uh, try to articulate this in a because as a an exciting, sexy person, I listen to C-SPAN in the car. I listen to Corinne Jean-Pierre uh, try to to make some sense out of this, and it's just you know it's a hash. There's no. I will acknowledge that in statecraft, you can't always tell the truth, right? Biden can't say, well, look, Russia invaded Ukraine. We needed oil. We had to drop a lot of our previous positions to go do it. But I agree that that probably deserves some sharper follow-up. Let's. I also wanted to pull the clip. He was asked about Hunter Biden and the Washington Post report indicating that the Justice Department has uh, enough evidence to charge him with a crime. So let's play that. Our reporting, CNN's reporting and the Washington Post reporting suggests the prosecutors think they could, they have enough to charge your son, Hunter, uh, for tax crimes and a false statement about a gun purchase. Um, personally and politically, um, how do you react to that? Well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm proud of my son. This is a kid who got, uh, not a kid, he's a grown man. He got uh, hooked on, uh, uh, like many families have had happen, hooked on drugs. Uh, he's overcome that. He's established a new life. He is, um, uh, I'm confident that he is, what he says and does are consistent with what happens. Um, and, uh, for example, he wrote a book about his problems and was straightforward about it. I'm proud of him. He came along and said, by the way, this thing about a gun, I didn't know anything about it, but turns out that when he made my application to purchase a, a gun, what happened was he said, I guess you get asked, I don't guess, you get asked the question, are you on drugs, you use drugs? He said no. And he wrote about saying no in right. his book. So I, 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 I have great confidence in my son. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how do you feel about the potential pending charges against your son is, you know, the most hard-hitting question there. And tax stuff was kind of just, yeah, let, let that one slide. But, Chris, I know you'll disagree with me. Hit well, me, hit me. No, 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 no. I mean, look. What 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 do you say as a dad? Like, what would you say as a parent? You you know, your daughter is and will always be perfect. Uh, but as a parent, you think about what would you say if one of your kids was in trouble, right, and had messed up, and then it has political consequences for you. So how do you be a loving parent but have to do it in public but have to think about the political con- – I mean, it's a, it's a pickle. I, I will say that the – so far, at least, it seems, and you you will correct me where I'm wrong on this, that the Justice Department is proceeding in a normal way with this. Does this seem, are there complaints about the handling of this? No, they have, the according to reports, they have referred it to the attorney in the state of Delaware and yeah. are letting him decide how to proceed. And I, and I don't, I have no idea what the federal penalties for these things are, but they're probably not enormous. Excellent. Speaking of woof, so- Sean Hannity got a hold of, and I don't know whether you know the the provenance of this, but got a hold of a voicemail that Joe Biden left for his son in 2018, contemporaneous, I think, to this gun purchase. Is that right? I think that's right. Yes, October 15th, 2018, three days after Hunter Biden allegedly made a false statement while purchasing a gun. Let's listen to the clip from the Fox primetime host by the Daily Mail from October of 2018, where Joe Biden is allegedly begging Hunter to get help for his substance abuse. Take a listen. It's Dad. I called to tell you I love you. I love you more than the whole world, pal. 
Can I get some help? I don't know what to do. I know you don't either. And then Hannity comes back and says, it's really sad, kind of. And you're like, yeah, it's ex- it's extraordinarily sad, sir. And what I can't figure out with it, Hannity came under a, a lot of condemnation on the left for airing this clip that it's, you know, morbid and it's, it's you know, it's it's gross. And maybe it is. I don't know. What I can't figure out is, what did he think he was accomplishing by that, right? If anything, it makes the Bidens more sympathetic, right? That's like a sympathetic and it's an intimate moment between a father and a son, and it sort of corroborates their case. So if I, I don't know why Sean Hannity did that, but I guess he thought it was, I guess it got, I guess it got a lot of attention. We're talking about it now. Well, I don't object to it, but I agree with you. It like makes Biden look good. Yeah. Uh, yes. We got to talk about Kanye, right? Yes, we, yes, we most certainly do. Yes, we most certainly do. Or ye, or Yeezy. Given the, given the Vice, the clips that were leaked to Vice that were not aired on Tucker Carlson's show, it was a two-parter, Tucker's interview with Kanye West, and the, or Ye. And, and, th- and this happened, so I want to get my, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to get my TikTok right, which is, we start out, Kanye West wears a t-shirt that says White Lives Matter. At Fashion Week. At Fashion Week, obviously. So, of course, Fox News goes just ape. Very excited. Like, very excited about the return of Yeezus. And and so everybody's going for it. And Tucker schedules a two-parter, and they air it. I think it is at the end of last week that they – so a a two-night special, Tucker Carlson – uh, looking like uh, the headmaster at Deerfield interviewing Kanye West, who looks like he is just out of a federal supermax penitentiary with this huge beard, and he's wearing a lanyard with a picture of an aborted fetus on it, or a fetus on it. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, it's just a, it's just just a, a, fetus. a fetus. But let's listen to how Tucker <laughs> sets up the interview on night one, because it's amazing given what we know now. Let's play that clip. What was strikingly missing from the coverage, however, was any explanation for why West did this. What was the T-shirt about? No one seemed to think to ask him, much less to listen to what he had to say. Instead, the enemies of his ideas dismissed West, as they have for years, as mentally ill. Too crazy to take seriously. Look away. Ignore him. He's a mental patient. There's nothing to see here. But is West crazy? You can judge for yourself as you watch what we're about to show you. He has his own ideas. We can say that. Creative people tend to. That's why they're artists, not actuaries. His freeform social media posts give the impression of a man channeling his rawest emotions right onto Instagram. The effect can be jarring, and it's often used as ammunition against him in the battle for influence over the minds of America's young people. And that battle is intense. But crazy? That was not our conclusion. In fact, we've rarely heard a man speak so honestly and so movingly about what he believes. But again, you can judge for yourself. Well, Vice... News gets its hands on the unaired clips, which, I mean, either these statements like that there were fake children planted in Kanye's house to, like, spy on his own children and that the designer Virgil Abloh was killed by Louis Vuitton, either that didn't, didn't those didn't strike Tucker as crazy or he, like, edited out the stuff that was obviously insane and concealed it from his audience 
or well, tried to conceal it from his audience and went on air and said, people call the guy crazy, but he's, you know, like deep. he's a prophet. He's deep. Yeah, he's yeah, deep. Yeah, he's a prophet. Well, the, it, uh, I, it is, yikes. It seems like, what well, before we hear the clip, it seems like what happens here, and I'm going to guess, I have no working knowledge if anything happens on Tucker Carlson's television show, but it sounds like what happens is, so they run this interview. It courts the kind of controversy that the show likes. It's contrarian. It's all this stuff. And yeah, I would say Jared Kushner doing Abraham Accords for the money with no pushback. Is, that, <laughs> yeah. That's a contrarian that, That's take. a contrarian point of view. So then on Sunday or Monday, Kanye West tweets that he is going to Death Con 3 on all Jews in the morning. Now, I assume he just didn't know that it's Def Con, as any person who had watched the fantastic 1980s movie War Games would know, that it's defense condition, but not that he was going to kill all Jews, but that he was going to Def Con 3 on all Jews tomorrow. And, of course, the media world erupted. A media world that let, let me go ahead and make your point for you in advance. Media world that is often slow to acknowledge anti-Semitism when it occurs was like, Full siren, air raid alert goes off on Kanye West. And then, and check my timing on this, and then somebody from inside Fox leaks out the the parts of the interview. Presumably, it ha- it's either that or someone on Kanye's team, right? I guess. I'm guessing it's Fox, but. It must be Fox, because I, I doubt they would surrender the, 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 the video to Kanye's people. So somebody inside Fox, which is a big enough media story on its own, to have somebody inside Fox leaking clips of this show in which Kanye West says some pretty anti-Semitic stuff. Let's let's take a listen to the anti-Semitry. I was biting my tongue on my political opinion because I thought it would be better for my children. And now you look up and my kids are going to a school that teaches black kids a complicated Kwanzaa. I prefer my kids' new Hanukkah than Kwanzaa. At least it will come with some financial engineering. <laughs> Kwanzaa doesn't, you know, so they don't teach even Christmas itself, Christmas. Planned Parenthood was made by Margaret Sanger, a known eugenics with the KKK to control the Jew population. When I say Jew, I mean the 12 lost tribes of Judah, the blood of Christ. The thing I, I really take issue with here is like the presentation and the giving of a platform to somebody and, and his remarks that went like right up to the line of anti-Semitic statements. And, you know, for many people, including me, like would say over the line. But like, you know, saying Jared did the Abraham Accords for the money is like, you know, right on that line. And then concealing, like, well, no, this guy's obviously a bigot or Wait, who said, who said that about the Abraham Accords? Kanye said oh, that. Oh, he said that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He said that in what aired on Tucker. And then presenting him as, like, oh, people say this guy's, like, people say this guy's crazy, but he's absolutely not. Like, h- how is that doing a service to your audience in any way? Well, it's not. It's insane. And it's also, and look, he, I have a lot of, uh, this will sound odd, I have a lot of sympathy for Kanye West. He is a. He got taken advantage of here because he again, seems to be having a mental break. Yeah, again, and again, he's he is. Uh, I'm I'm not a psychiatrist, but if you didn't know that, I'm not a psychiatrist. But he is an unwell person, right? He and and putting him on television and is is ethically wrong. And you know, we went through this once before with Donald Trump. Remember when it was like Donald Trump? You remember the Donald Trump Kanye West Oval Office meeting? Yes. 
just like it was it, they were they were acting like someone had just let like a live peacock into the room and they're all just sort of like looking at him like ooh he's there he's got we're giving him a make america great again hat like he was some space alien the effort for right wing media to claim and use kanye west is gross and inappropriate and this is you know wow this this is this is how it goes about to illustrate the the problems with kanye exploitation Todd Rakita, the attorney general of Indiana, had a series of tweets defending Kanye. He was trying to hop on the White Lives Matter. Well, this is like all the other hosts at Fox did the same thing, and yes. then they had to pivot and say, oh, whoops, we didn't see everything else he said. But that's because like Tucker positioned him as a prophet, and before people do their due diligence, like there was a lot that was left on the cutting room floor, it turns out. And and I think the Indianapolis Star came after Rakita, the I mean, they came after him a little unfairly. He obviously, or it seems pretty obvious to me that he did not know about the anti-Semitic statements prior to issuing his tweet. So I think that, that, that Claire Rafford is the reporter for the Indianapolis Star. I think she could could clearly have, this was an, an, a, thir- an error of thirst and ignorance, not like, oh, I've been caught supporting yeah, not, Kanye not West. Bigotry. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 is, he was not caught supporting anti-Semitism. So somebody should talk to his communications department about how to talk about Jews. The, as he himself stated, the post was clearly aimed at the hypocrisy of the media and Hollywood elites. Sure, Indiana. That's what Indiana is thinking about. He has an obvious, clear, and substantial congressional and public record of being 100% supportive. <laughs> he, has, he has an obvious, clear, and substantial congressional and public record of being 100% supportive of the Jewish. <laughs> that I want that on a bumper. I want a bumper sticker supportive of the Jewish. Hundred percent supportive of the, the Jewish. One hundred percent voting record supportive of the. We Jewish. Here, we we hereby declare if I if I if I can act unilaterally, we declare ink stained wretches supportive to be one hundred percent supportive of the Jewish. Uh, well, speaking of the Jewish rabbis uh, everywhere, like thank you, Todd Rakita. There was there was the most amazing New York Times piece on Doug Mastriano's. Well alleged anti-Semitic dog whistles. And like, I mean, the problem with the piece is obviously Mastriano's a total nutcase. Yeah. But they're, the evidence they built of his anti-Semitism in the piece, I read it and I was like, wait, this stuff isn't anti-Semitic. It was hilarious. So the piece is headlined, Mastriano's attacks on Jewish schools set up outcry over anti-Semitic signaling. And my thought was just like, Guys, this guy isn't going to dog whistle or signal if he wants to be anti-Semitic. He's not like a subtle guy. He's just going to Kanye. He's uh. just going to go full Kanye. So they say, Mr. Mastriano, who promotes Christian power and disdains the separation of church and state, has repeatedly lashed Mr. Shapiro, that is his opponent in the Pennsylvania gubernatorial election, for attending and sending his children to what Mastriano calls a, quote, privileged, exclusive, elite school, suggesting to one audience that it evinced Mr. Shapiro's, quote, disdain for people like us. It is a Jewish day school where students are given both secular and religious instruction, but Mr. Mastriano's language in portraying it as an elitist reserved seemed to be a dog whistle. I mean, that is the most, like, mundane political attack. Right. He uh, sends his kids to— It he, is he, ridiculous. He, yeah, he wants to be the governor, and, and, the, and public schools stink— and he sends his kids to private school. 
That's okay. Uh, I don't know. The, I don't know all the context, but that's that doesn't is, strike me. I as. read the very long piece all the way through, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm not seeing anti-Semitism here." Calling a private school, a private Jewish day school, elite, and in fact, you know, I would very much like to send my daughter to a Jewish day school, and I was like, "I, I hope people call that elite exclusive." Yeah, like I, I would like that. Yes, thank you. It was well, this here- piece is hilarious and absurd oh, and guys like you don't have to dig that hard if you you know well i i would also imagine that for shapiro's campaign so pennsylvania is one of four states maybe where there's a significant enough jewish vote that it is there there are five or six million jews in the united states but they're politically powerful because they're concentrated in a handful of states right florida new york new jersey pennsylvania and you know you may be Maryland, but where they're, they're, you know, Pennsylvania is one of the only states where it's a, a swing state and it's a, a considerable voting block. So for Shapiro, anything he can do to drag Mastriano, because one of the problems- This is the, the way, New York Times. Well, but Shapiro, as you read the story, you see Shapiro is like leaning into yeah. the attack. He's like, he's, he's, He's dredging that he's he he is. Well, he's also this. put these ads up that show him like having Shabbat dinner with his right. family and blah blah. He's definitely like embracing his identity. Hollaback, but for the Jews in one of the problems that Democrats have, and I know this is not the I know this is not the news about the news, but actually the news. But one of the problems that Democrats have is that more traditional and orthodox Jews are increasingly leaning Republican over a variety of issues, but, you know, mostly cultural ones. And this is a good way to pry, to try to, try to pry some of them away. And then it looks like the New York Times went along. Chris, I wanted to talk a pe- about a piece that I completely missed. It is from over a month ago in the Washington Post, September 6th, 2022. Politico's new German owner has a contrarian plan for American media. And my understanding from some friends at Politico and whatever was that the piece did not go over well there. It's amazing. It's about Matthias Doppner, but I read this thing and I felt like it was the Ron DeSantis New Yorker profile where it's like this Rorschach test of kind of where you are politically because I read it and I was like, I love this man. Like, I love everything about him. Matthias Doppner? Yeah. So basically there, there's a huge brouhaha over this guy in 2020 sending an email to colleagues indicating that he was praying for Trump's victory and then the author writes despite his 2020 email to colleagues which he describes as flippant Doffner insists he has never been a supporter of Trump in an interview with the post he describes himself he describes his own views as eclectic calling himself a quote non-jewish Zionist with small L liberal tendencies deeply concerned about racism and homophobia and says he does profess a fondness for contrarians, though, and called provocateur Tesla CEO Elon Musk, currently embroiled in litigation over his noisy attempt to take over Twitter and upend its moderation policies. Quote, one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. And then it goes, it, he's a colorful guy, and it goes on to talk about how he has the, apparently the largest collection of new of art depicting naked women done by women, by by women artists in the world. And he like built a museum to house this art. It's amazing. Um, It's amazing. And by the way, I had the thought, like if this guy had sent an email to his colleagues praying for Biden's victory in 2020, nobody would care. Well, they uh, maybe they they would, but he's clearly mocking them, right? 
because his point is like, it will be good for business if this happens. And he's clearly probably not a praying man. I don't, I, perhaps the owner of the world's largest museum of female nudes made by females is a devoutly religious person, but I'm gathering that he is taunting his colleagues that you want to get up with me to pray in the morning for Donald Trump's victory so we'd be wealthier. Ha, ha, ha. Sarah Ellison wrote the piece. Kudos to her for writing this fascinating profile. It is awesome. And kudos to the Washington Post for sending her to Berlin. And kudos to Dipfner for giving her the interview. And I love the backstory about how he obtained control of this organization through the widow of the yes, founder. Yes, wait, can I read this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the the Axel Springer's widow just decided that she liked this guy, and he, I think his background was in music journalism. So it says, it's tempting to assume that Springer, and this is the widow, Axel Springer's widow, saw something of her late husband, a vigorous and dapper man who sparred avidly with left-wing activists during Germany's tumultuous 1960s and 70s and dreamed of reunification with the East in the swaggering young journalist, and that's Doppner. Instead, she says she saw a fellow outsider. The corporate brass had underestimated her, too. The much younger nanny who married the boss and who was certainly not expected to take a leading role in the company after his death in 1985. There's, like, very Catherine Graham vibes about her. Truly. When the company struggled to survive a period of rapid C-suite turnover, she looked to Doppner. And, it's great. And just how she chose him because he got it. And he's six seven, you know, V-necks and like very Euro trash attire. It's he just, is handsome. We And his wife looks very attractive. We have declared Dipfner as he's attractive. Handsome. Yes. He, he's oh, okay. There he's very German looking. I will say he is very German looking. Oh my gosh, he's so cute and she's adorable. There is her. no one who would say I wonder if Click he is through, from I wonder if think, he is guys. from Greece. No, he is German. All right, next up is your item, Chris. Oh, good. Don't even it? respond that they're all joint items. Oh, you know what? It would take it takes a village to raise a podcast. I had been not down on, but a little like over the I might be wrong Substack and I had just sort of like forgotten about it and Jeff Maurer and boy, his one on COVID. Did we learn a single blanking thing? He didn't say blanking thing from COVID. Subhead, my sense is nope. And it is such a smart, good take on on this, on this subject. And there is so much good media stuff in here. And one of read the- us, Read us a little. One of the things- that Maurer does well is call out the shibboleths of the left as a person of the left without being sort of the, what's her name at the Washington Post? The Jen, without being a Jen Rubin of the left, he manages to, to, to hold his side to account. And here's a, here's a taste. In May of 2020, the front page of the New York Times ran the names of 100,000 Americans who had, to that point, died of COVID. Under the baffling headline, U.S. deaths near 100,000, an incalculable loss. Is the 100,000 number not something of a calculation? It was meant to be a somber acknowledgement of COVID's enormous human toll. And it was that. But because the Times included the ages next to the deceased names, it was also a reminder that most people who die of COVID are very, very old. And he goes on from there to talk about the ways in which the media narratives around COVID were, and by the way, I think a lot of it is was hype 
over partisanship. I think that it was to it was in it's always in a reporter's interest to have the story be as sensational as possible. And a more deadly virus is more sensational than a less deadly virus. And if we let reporters run the pandemic agencies, we would always be in a state of pandemic because it's a better story. But he goes on to talk about, and here's another great line, being pro-science means you might have to change your opinions. Early in the pandemic, the populist right confirmed their position as the undisputed champs of remaining ignorant of all evidentiary data. First, led by Trump, they waved away the pandemic severity. Next, they shunned masks due to their failure to grasp the complex scientific principle, quote, they help a bit. Vaccine skeptical was the coup de grace. When it comes to being so ideologically blinded that you can barely qualify as sentient, the GOP's performance is akin to the Yankee sluggers Aaron Judge. But but the Twitter left ended up posting some not-too-shabby science-ignorant stats of their own. As the pandemic evolved, many people's views on mitigation measures did not. Even after vaccine... Vaccines, Paxlovid, better information about transmissibility, higher society-wide immunity rates, and less deadly strains of the virus became reality. Some people remained as committed to masks and social distancing as they were in March of 2020. And it goes on like this. And it's really smart, and it's really good, and I, I really recommend it as, a, as an even-handed look at, at press coverage, media coverage of COVID and how it went. It was a good after-action report. Kudos to you, Jeff Maurer. It is time for the style section. Yeah. Yep. Yep, we have a good good pairing for our A32. We've got a great Washington Post piece, the most common restaurant cuisine in every state, and a chain restaurant mystery. It's a mystery. Hit it, hit it, Chris. It's a mystery. What what would explain the popularity of chain restaurants in some places? So, analysis by Andrew Van Dam. Ah, <laughs> the muscles from Brussels. Andrew Van Dam, staff writer for the Washington Post. Uh, is going to take us through this mystery, and there is a so these researchers. First of all, chain restaurant capital of the country is the metro area around Anniston, Alabama, home to the Talladega Super Speedway, where nearly three in five restaurants are chains. So here, so I'm not sure how to pronounce the Chinese name L I A N G. Is that Liang? Mm-hmm. Okay. It turns out the foodscape is very political, said Liang, a PhD candidate at Georgia Tech School of City and Regional Planning. Places with high percentage of Trump voters have a higher percentage of chains. We didn't expect it. Really? You couldn't have figured out that in places Yeah, the the, the leap there is you couldn't, uh, not you too couldn't have imagined that and here's the the paragraph. Chain restaurants, those ubiquitous monuments to corporate consistency from Applebee's to Arby's, easy on Arby's. Olive Garden to Pizza Hut are most common in Kentucky, West Virginia, and Alabama. They're rarest in Vermont, Alaska, and Hawaii. Maine, New York, and D.C. also tend to have fewer chains. Are you guys kidding me with this? Are you seriously like what? Is, this is such a mystery. I wonder why it. I wonder why this is the case. Maybe it is because that places with small populations, lots of parking space, do not support a lot of farm to table artisanally crafted hipster mayonnaise shops. Maybe it is possible that places where people have lower household incomes and drive to work, and they do talk about the driving in here, but just there is a hillbillies in the mist phenomenon here of looking at America like, and I, I you know, maybe it's because they're eating at Applebee's. They're voting for Trump. They go in. <laughs> and by the way, never eat at Applebee's. Applebee's. I is, love Applebee's. It is the worst. What? It is the absolute worst. I would. Oh, my gosh. You 
You are history's greatest monster. Oh, my gosh. I've never told you about that. Applebee's is great. I've been on a boycott of Applebee's since 1997. Yeah. I like Applebee's, and I like Burger King, and we're going to get to that Ever since the riblet. Have I ever never told you about the riblet incident? So they had an all-you-could-eat riblet offer, and they wouldn't bring me... They brought me I feel a, like those are words that shouldn't be put together. <laughs> all you can eat and riblet. I was I was a senior in college probably, and they were having an, uh, an all you can eat riblet offer, and I had eaten my riblets, and I was ready for additional riblets. Obviously, as a person who can put away some riblets, and they brought me out like three like knuckles of riblet, like these chunks, and I was like, no, I I can do it again. And they're like, no, you can't have any more until you eat these three like gnarly, grisly bits. And I was like, this is not what we were talking about. And I left, and I have not gone back to an Applebee's ever since then. You showed them. Well, I mean, I have deprived them of a decent amount of, if you think about all the food that I have eaten, in, that, in the, that, that's that is a lot. A good point. Right? That's a lot. That is a good point. I would rank those restaurants as such. Ruby Tuesday, Oh, whoa, 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 sorry. Cracker Barrel, Ruby Tuesday, Chili's, and what else am I missing? Any in that category? Outback. Oh, Outback, wonderful. Longhorn Steakhouse. Outback one. Of yeah, the, Outback, yeah. Longhorn Steakhouse maybe one. Applebee's, I, I would eat it at Denny's before I would eat it at Applebee's. Oh, oh. Colin, oh, fine. Okay, whatever, Elite, that's that's fine. Your Auntie Denny's. Applebee's is great. Nate uh, Moore, have, you, have okay. you ever eaten it at Denny's? Okay, Nate says yes. Okay, we got him last time on Arby's. Now we're 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 filling in his dance card. How about Perkins? Yeah, I like a Perkins. Me too. I like a Perkins pancake. Me too. Most importantly, Burger King's new CEO seeks to restore Chain's luster. <laughs> Guys, new look coming to Burger King. This um, is Wall Street Journal dives deep. Yes, and most interesting, it notes that they're. Chicken sandwich was a flop. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. The retro For decades, the number two U.S. burger chain, Burger King, in 2020 slipped to third behind Wendy's and McDonald's. Chicken sandwich giant Chick-fil-A also surpassed Burger King, but that's not considered a burger chain. And it's this the new CEO, it says, we made some bad decisions in the last couple of years. We made some significant changes as a result. Hold on. I want to read the chicken thing. Burger King also struggled with its chicken sandwich, a crispy chicken menu item launched it, blah, blah. Burger King aimed to differentiate its chicken sandwich by having restaurant employees hand bread each breast patty. Oh but boy. despite heavy marketing and franchisees investing thousands of dollars to equip restaurants with breading stations, it didn't catch on. Okay, guys, they had the perfect chicken sandwich, the long sub-shaped one. We didn't need this. We could have told you that. We Chris did tell and I them are that. Available. Yep. Yeah. We did tell them that. We we shared the news. I'm glad that the wretch effect once again. First yeah. first we canceled reliable sources. Now we have we have brought down the chicken. Yeah. Okay. I think I just my only point on this was the headline writer, the word luster seems to be doing a lot of work on Burger King, which is basically Burger King is America's answer of like, well, I guess it's not blimpy, I think is what I think is what Burger King fills the role of. And now, a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. 
Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. It is time for our Obsessions of the Week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Mine was this amazing New York Times piece on, you know, I will call it Biden's lies. They are going to call it, this is the headline, Biden, storyteller-in-chief, spins yarns that often unravel. And this is about how, you know, like every other story the guy tells in public turns out to be not true. And, like, look, a lot of politicians do this kind of thing. But, of course, they don't say he's lying. They they basically present it in the most, like, hazy, gentle, soft-focused way possible. Corn pop. And the whole thing is, like, Biden lies, but Trump. So let me just read from it. For more than four decades, Mr. Biden has embraced storytelling. It's, it's storytelling as a way of connecting with his audience, often emphasizing the truth of his account by adding not a joke in, a middle of the, in the middle of a story. But Mr. Biden's folksiness can veer into folklore with dates that don't quite add up and details that are exaggerated or wrong. The factual edges shaved off to make them more powerful for audiences. Mr. Biden's instances of exaggeration and falsehood fall well short of those of his predecessor, who during four years in office delivered what the Washington Post fact-checker called a tsunami of untruths and CNN described as a staggering avalanche of daily wrongness. Former President Donald J. Trump lied constantly. Like, wait, how do we get here from your story about Biden lying when he speaks in public. So former President Donald Trump lied constantly, not only about trivial details, like insisting it hadn't rained during his inauguration when it clearly had, but also about consequential moments, misleading about the pandemic, perpetuating the big lie that Mr. Biden stole the 2020 election, and claiming falsely that the Capitol was not attacked by his supporters on January 6, 2021. I mean, guys. (gasps) Well... I will say, I'm counting, it was, <gasps> it was two paragraphs, eight paragraphs in, and I agree with you. I agree that it's the My God. The, need, the need to, much as the Washington Post had to make a story about Applebee's, a story about Trump, that, that's, that's fairly Trumpy. But I would also say that in order to, I, I think Michael Shear and his co-author Linda Koo, sorry, if they they should be credited for doing a story about the fact that Biden is such a is such a BSer, right? Like he and and it, it is a long story that goes all the way back to his 1988 campaign and pulling up embarrassing quotes from the past and doing the whole thing. So they definitely did what you say they did, but I think they are to be credited for I'm a glass half empty kind of person. <laughs> I mean, you know, two one cheer for the effort. Not 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 so great on the execution, guys. Well, all right. Well, I'll give you I'll give you two. I'll give you I'll, I'll give you two cheers. My obsession, you shared with me, and I am now a subscriber to Mary Catherine Ham's Substack, who I, who is not, I guess, who is our colleague, and her podcast, which you should also subscribe to, is called Getting Hammered with Vic Mattis, and you should subscribe to that also. But she wrote on her Substack, it's a, a piece, in an age of quiet quitting, I was quiet suspended, and I can't shut up about it. And Mary Catherine talks, she's such a good writer, and she talks about what happened to her after she had the audacity 
to talk about how ridiculous it was that her then CNN colleague, Jeff Tubin, was not terminated for pleasuring himself on a Zoom call. And like, I don't know, I think it hit with me because I'm a person who has been put in the put on put on the shelf before and sometimes because I deserved it sometimes because I didn't or whatever it's a it's a it's a weird feeling right it's a strange feeling where you're like am I and then somebody says hey by the way you know you're you're on you're, you're in the icebox for a little bit here and that's okay you know they don't they don't owe me uh, but the interesting thing here is that while and I, I think it really speaks to what was wrong in at CNN under Jeff Zucker, that they went to such extraordinarily absurd lengths to protect Jeff Tubin, a person who had already demonstrated that he was not a person worth keeping. And they punished Mary Catherine Hamm in this way and in this sort of insidious Without even way. having the cojones to right. tell her. Like, yeah, you're in the box. You, we don't. And, and by the way, it would be a perfectly reasonable position for CNN to take and say, hey, we don't talk about our colleagues on Twitter. Whatever you think, keep it to yourself. You're suspended for two weeks. That's fine, right? But the the putting her in the cooler without telling her she's in the cooler, that's not cool. It's just a good piece. She's a good writer, and I'm really I'm really pleased to have read it, and I'm pleased to be in touch with her Substack. So thank you. Chris, it is now time for my favorite part of the week. Reader mail, and we have a note from Matt. And Matt writes, Hi, Eliana and Chris. I am a big fan of the show. I wanted to share this story from my hometown in Nebraska that I thought you might be interested in reading. I am clicking through. This is me talking. Six Uh, Nebraska towns. Yes. Six Nebraska towns are trying to ban abortion. Will it change anything? Okay. Primarily, I'd be interested in hearing your take on the news director for a small NBC affiliate in North Platte, Nebraska, who helped with a petition drive to abolish abortion in Curtis, a small town nor- south of North Platte, with a population of about 800. This is referenced in the story about three-fourths of the way through the article. Not only did she help with the petition drive, but she also reported on the effort. No, she has reportedly no. since been fired. Yes. Here's another article referencing her firing. Thanks for making my Friday morning runs more tolerable every week. Keep up the good work. No, you, uh, can't, you, Chris? Can't, you can't do that. You can't you can't lead a petition drive as the news director. Now, I don't know the circumstances of the case. I don't know whether termination you would I, I'll put it this way. If I was a station manager and had a news director who made a, a very serious mistake like this. Now, obviously this is a small, small market and probably a young person, I'm gonna guess, that you would hope that you could say, Hey, you know, Susie Cream Cheese, I know you're pro-life and that's fine. I don't mind you being pro-life. That's great for you, but you can't be involved in public causes and be the news director here. And hopefully Susie Cream Cheese would then say, oh my gosh, boss, I didn't realize, I, I thought of this as more of a personal time thing. And you say, okay, well, just in the future, don't do that. And that that would be enough. So I, I don't know that the termination, why the termination was necessary. Maybe it was, but yeah, there is absolutely no doubt that you... You can't put, if I don't think you can put a yard sign in your yard, I think you can vote. Do you vote? I vote. I think, I think a journalist can vote. I don't really. I mean, I have in my life, but it's, I'm, I, I definitely threw away my DC ballot when it arrived in the mail yesterday. Cause like also (laughs) yeah, (laughs) big, the big, the big choices for DC general election voters. But 
I, I, I think you can vote, but I don't think you can have a yard sign. I don't think you can let your spouse put a bumper sticker on your family car, even if it was, even if it was one that said 100% supports the Jewish. I don't think you can put any political stuff out. I don't think you can wear lapel buttons. I don't think you can do any of that and work in a news organization. And you definitely can't lead a petition drive to ban abortion. And then write about it. And then cover it. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, Matt. Yes, thank you. Chris, it is now time for your favorite moment of the week. Which is when I am forced to say something nice. So it is our favorites. Favorites, but you are going to lead by example. What is your favorite item? Atlantic Peace headline, the most important amicus brief in the history of the world. Parody is being threatened right when we need it most by Mike Gillis. And it is the, the amicus brief in question is from The Onion. Are, are you an Onion consumer? Sometimes. I, the Onion's Instagram account is a, is a treasure and a truly, the, the Onion went through a real, I, I don't know what the history of the Onion is, but it went through a real lull where it was becoming more, what's his name for the New Yorker, the, the humorous, the alleged humorous. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, it was becoming Borowitzian. Yeah, uh, like, yeah. Like, we got it. We got it. Okay, we got it. And so The Onion is is back and good, and they filed a three-word amicus brief in the case of Anthony Novak versus City of Parma, Ohio. Tu stultutus s, which is Latin for you are dumb, was the amicus brief from The Onion. And the I guess the guy who's writing this is from The Onion. Oh, even better, even more delightful, he's the head writer. And anyway, this guy in Parma, Ohio, was viciously attacking by parody the city government in in Parma, and they came after him and were trying to shut him down and and all of this stuff. It's, it's It's a fascinating story behind it. I would encourage everybody to read up on it. You know, satire has become so, people are so bad at it. And it's, it's so often misused and misunderstood, but it is crucially important for holding people to account. It is crucially important for, you know, American egalitarianism. It, I, I, freak, I, I always think it's Bertrand Russell, but I think this is probably wrong. Is not that I'm equal to you. It is that you are equal to me. It is a great way to bring the high low. And thank you, The Onion. My favorite item is Chris I want to like have the longest string of favorite items on the chess cheating. Yes, yes, so, yes. So it's the Wall Street Journal. Chess investigation finds that U.S. Grandmaster likely cheated more than 100 times. So this is the guy, Hans Mok Niemann, who the chess prodigy Magnus Carlsen uh, had like walked out of games with. So we find out in the journal. Now, however, an investigation into Niemann's play Conducted by Chess.com, an online platform where many top players compete, has found the scope of his cheating, this is Niemann's, to be far wider and longer lasting than he publicly admitted. The report, reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, alleges that Niemann likely received illegal assistance in more than 100 online games as recently as 2020. Those matches included contests in which prize money was on the line. The site uses a variety of cheating detection tools, including analytics that compare moves to those recommended by chess engines, which are capable of beating even the greatest human players every time. The report states that Neiman privately confessed to the allegations and that he was subsequently banned from the site for a period of time. 
on and on. But anyhow, it appears that Magnus Carlsen's instinct that something was not right were correct. I am going to regret this question already, but is this the one that involved using a device to send sensations? They didn't know how he was doing it. But to, is, does this involve a device that would send sensations to a particularly sensitive sphincter muscle in the body? Is this? Is they this, didn't know how he was doing I, it. Am I? Am I? Am I crazy, Colin? I am crazy, but also, <laughs> but both both things are true. And they also don't know whether he had cheated in person. Or maybe he was just doing it because he enjoyed it. <laughs> maybe it was just recreational in his booty. Wow. If you have ever been wanded in your booty for a stimulator device to cheat at chess, you should rethink your priorities. You should really rethink your life choices. Your, your, your search history is about to be ruined. <laughs> okay. So I'm not, I'm not completely crazy. That is, that is a part of the story. I, as a 12-year-old boy, latched onto that part. But it is totally fast. I, you have made me, uh, you have drawn me into your fixation on chess I'm cheating. I'm so You've glad. Succeeded. And you pointed out another thing. Oh, even better. Oh, it's even better. Oh, Faith and Begara to you. Irish dancing. It's rocked with a major allegations of competitive fixing. I mean, talk about the most Irish story ever, which is that people are fixing Irish dance competitions. You know, Michael Flatley must be very disappointed wherever he is. The Lord of the Dance is really down on it. Uh, uh, Ellen Coyne in The Independent writes, the prestigious global body that governs Irish dancing has been rocked by allegations of competition fixing and cheating. The CLRG uh, is dealing with its largest ever alleged cheating scandal, which has seen some of the most successful and well-regarded Irish dance teachers in schools accused of fixing competitions for their own students. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's an epidemic. But alas, that... Whoa, whoa. Between, like, Sirius XM will not stop calling me. That is who is calling me. Oh, have you ever have you ever tried to break up with Sirius XM? I, I, I don't ever answer the calls. They're psychotic. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. crazy. Alas, that is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.